Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, I was reminded this week of a kindergarten teacher who was walking around while her classroom full of students were busy drawing pictures when she found a little girl who was especially, especially hard, working hard at a drawing. So she asked her what it was that she was drawing. And the little girl said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher replied, but sweetie, no one knows what God looks like. To which this girl replied with, Not even a flinch. Well, they certainly will in a minute. (laughs) And isn't that how it goes? Not just for kindergartners, but for all of us, right? This is what we do. That so often we draw God up however we please. And yet to know the one true and living God We've been invited not to draw him up however we please, but to know him as he's revealed himself in history and as he's seen fit to have recorded in his word. Which is why every week we take the time to turn our attention to this ancient book. Because in it, God has made himself known. And we're doing that today as we we pick up in our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, these two ancient books that are part of this ancient bigger book, this series that we've been calling Rebuild. As we've been looking in on how God at this particular time, at this particular point in his people's history, rebuilt their identity and rebuilt their worship and their joy. How he rebuilt their confidence and conviction. And what we're going to see today in this passage that we're going to look at, about to look at, how he rebuilt their action. Which is something he's been rebuilding through all of this in some ways, but something we're going to focus in on today especially, as we focus in on what that action looks like in the life of his people. So turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the passage we're going to be picking up in as we look at Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. We finished up Ezra last week. We're moving on to the next book. These two were written as one scroll together, so a continuation of the same story, though a transition into a new part of that. We're picking up again in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. And if your Bible isn't already creased or bookmarked there, Nehemiah is the book after Ezra. So you have 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, about two-fifths of the way through. And as usual, I want to begin by at least reading a portion of this passage, really the portion we're going to focus most of our attention on, which is the portion that runs from chapter 1, verse 1, through to verse 11. So I'm going to read that, and you can follow along as I do, again, as I read Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, 
that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider today what action looks like in the life of your people, when your people turn to join you in your work, I pray even now that you would teach us to begin by praying all the more. That we would, on the one hand, be so entirely convinced of our own ability our inability to accomplish anything on our own, that, that it would drive us to our knees. But on the other hand, I pray that we would be so entirely confident in your ability to accomplish things through us that it would then drive us to move, ultimately because of Jesus and on behalf of Jesus the power of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Lights, camera, action. These are the iconic words now that a movie director uses to, to get the cameras rolling. Lights, camera, action. 
And, and as an audience, what we see on the, the silver screen or on the tube at home, if you still have a tube, or on the flat screen at home, what we see is everything that happens after. Lights, camera, action. But really, after a, a movie director says action, What's caught on camera in the, in the moments after isn't only an actor's performance, but in a way also the preparation that went into it. All the hours spent learning the lines, the, the, the getting into character, the going through the motions and, and getting into the, the mindset so that the final product is really a, a composition of all that's led up to that point in time. Which is why nowadays there's a whole side of cinematography that documents a movie's behind the scenes, right? We were watching a movie the other night and I, I couldn't believe it. I could watch more behind the scenes than I could actually watch movie. This is, this is a new thing, right? Documenting what happens behind the scenes, how it's made, and what goes in to the making. Why? Well, because again, what's caught on camera when a director says action isn't only the performance that follows, but really encompasses all the preparation that came before. Because the action starts behind the scenes even as it comes to life on camera. And it would be helpful to recognize that it's not so different when God calls action in the life of his people. When God's people join God in God's work. That what comes to life on camera, so to speak, starts behind the scenes which is a dynamic these opening two chapters of the book of Nehemiah help us see that, again, the action that, that comes to life on camera of God's people joining God in the accomplishment of God's work starts behind the scenes, which is what we're going to look at today. First, at how this action starts behind the scenes, and then second, how it comes to life on camera. So first, that action starts behind the scenes. And for the believer, that it specifically starts with prayer, a real behind-the-scenes kind of thing, as backwards as that seems, as counterintuitive as it sounds. Because if action is all about joining God in God's work, it only makes sense that, that from the very beginning, we'd be dependent on God. Kind of like an actor or actress who's about to play a real-life person on that silver screen. That, that, that any actor worth their salt would begin by going and getting to know the real-life person they're about to play, they're, they're about to portray. But, but how much more is that true for us who are not only attempting to act like God, as if that weren't enough, but attempting to act for God, to have God act through us. Because the fact of the matter is, we can't accomplish God's work apart from God. So this is where the action starts, with 
prayer, which is what we see even here for Nehemiah. That as soon as he's told in, the, in those opening verses in the, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that the remnant back in Jerusalem was in great trouble, told by his brother and these others who come back from Judah, and that the city walls were broken down and its gates had been destroyed. That it says, next in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, what? I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting and praying. On top of the the mourning and the the weeping going on. Fasting and praying. Fasting because that's a way of turning your attention away from the the things of this world and a a statement that there are other things more important, even than eating, believe it or not, there are more important things, and praying in the sense of turning your attention to God and to the things of God and to asking God to do what only God can. Fasting and praying. Because again, this is where the action starts, and how behind the scenes, before we even step onto the set, we acknowledge and maintain and live in a dependence on God, entirely convinced of our own inability to accomplish anything apart from God. It starts with prayer. But if I'm being honest with myself, this isn't really where I start. Because I'm more of a a Johnny get your gun kind of guy. I'm more of an act now, ask forgiveness later kind of guy. An ask for help only if you need it kind of guy. Because to me, life is really a DIY project. It's a do-it-yourself kind of thing, right? And I would rather just do it myself. Yet, Nowadays, I can jump on YouTube, and I can pretty much figure out how to do anything in life, how to play the bagpipes. I can learn how to sail a catamaran, how to build a personal helicopter, how to remove a wisdom tooth from my own mouth, all things I've looked into. Pretty sure I can do it. Yet, if we're going to more than just do life, but rather have a a part in restoring life, the only way we can do that is in dependence on the giver of life, in dependence on God. Which means, again, action has got to start with prayer. Like St. Augustine used to say, that while we work as if it depends on us, we got to be praying, knowing that it really all depends on God. But what does prayer look like in the life of a believer? Since it's the behind the scenes where the action is supposed to start. What does it look like? Let's just pause to to take a closer look. And from Nehemiah's prayer, we learn that it should be about God and about God's word and about God's work. About God and about God's word and about God's work. 
that, that our prayer should be about God, especially when it comes to why we're praying or why we're hoping God will listen, right? Because you make it about you and you don't really have a leg to stand on, right? You don't have a leg to stand on because in and of yourself, in and of myself, talking to the God of the universe isn't really something I have a right to. So rather than show up at the presidential gala and start listing off all the reasons you think you deserve to be there, better to just show up with the invitation. Better to just show up like Nehemiah does. With God, making it about God and the kind of God he is. Like Nehemiah does when he prays in verse 5. Oh Lord, God of heaven, great, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, tune your ear, he says, and turn your eyes. Not because I deserve it, because none of us do, but because that's what you do, God. Because that's the kind of God you are. Make it about God and the kind of God he is. A God who, with his people, keeps covenant and steadfast love. The only leg we have to stand on. That way, when you get around to you and the kind of guy or girl you are, you won't have anything to hide. And you won't have to hide anything. And you won't have to treat God like he's your Facebook friend always putting your best foot forward and worried that some family member is finally going to post that picture that somehow blows your cover. Instead, you'll just be able to be honest. Just like Nehemiah when he confesses the sins of his people. It says at the end of verse 6, even I and my father's house have sinned. He's not hiding anything because he doesn't have to because he's made his prayers about God, not about him. So make your prayers about God, rest in God, but also make them about God's word, which, which not only is where we, we come face to face with all our failures, like Nehemiah says in verse seven, but it's also verse eight where we come face to face with all God's favor, with all God's grace. Make it about God's word. So Nehemiah writes, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But, verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, which is pretty far away, from there, though you do not deserve it, God says, but deserve something far worse, I will gather them, God says, and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Which is really just Nehemiah's compilation of what God said to God's people in God's word back in the book of Deuteronomy. Likewise, our prayers ought to be about God's word too rooted in it, flowing from it, shaped by it. Otherwise, we just end up praying gimme prayers. You know what a gimme prayer is, right? Give me this, give me that. And all of a sudden, it ends up being all about us again. 
But you make your prayers about God's word, and it's just another way of, of keeping it all about God, which you can do by praying back to God what God's already spoken to us. It's, it's actually pretty simple. Not that you've got a quote for, for everyone, the, the chapter and verse you're praying from. The, oh God, as you say in your word, in the, in the 40th chapter of the, the book of Isaiah, in, in the 31st verse on, on page 726, 21 lines from the top on the right side hand of the page, that, that they who wait on you will mount up, Lord, with wings as eagles. You don't need to quote it like that, especially not to other people. You lose friends like that, right? Mm, hallelujah. No, but again, your prayers would be, should be rooted in and flow from and shaped by the Bible. Kath and I like to do this together. We walk up and down our sidewalk while the kids are climbing up trees or giving each other haircuts in the backyard. And we pray. We do this. We've started to do this more recently. We pray through a passage, one verse at a time, back and forth, up and down the sidewalk, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes with a kid in each arm, which we can hold four kids together. Often, though, praying through one of those prayers that are meant to teach us how to pray. You know, there's different prayers in the Bible, so we've learned this before. Don't pray the prayer of Jonah for yourself. And I ain't good, that's not good. That's not a good prayer, right? Um, it wasn't a good prayer for him. He got spit out, right? Like, that was God spitting him out, right? But there are prayers that are in the Bible to teach us how to pray. So we'll pray a prayer from the Psalms, right? You can pray any one of those. They're all meant to teach you how to pray. The prayers of, of the Apostle Paul, the prayers of the ap other apostles after him, or the prayers even that Jesus taught the apostles. Praying these prayers, one verse at a time, praying that, that God would, would help us, right? would help us as we, as we bask in his goodness, to, to trust in his faithfulness, to obey his commandments. Pray the prayers of the apostles. It's actually a double whammy, right? Because their prayers were about the word, and you pray their prayers that are now in the word, and it's like this double whammy kind of thing. This is let the word shape how you pray. Let your prayers flow from it, be rooted in it. And ultimately, pray that God would do what he said he's going to do, which is what Nehemiah is saying. Which means our prayer shouldn't just be about God and God's word, but really about God's work. Asking God to do what he said he was going to do. And do what only he can which is where Nehemiah lands in verses 10 and 11. And, and just notice when he prays how much it's about you, 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 rather than me, me, me. Just notice how he says this. Just look at verse 10. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed and by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. O Lord, he says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. 
all about you, you, you. Not about me, me, me. Why? Because apart from the you, the mean doesn't mean much. Because ultimately, it's about God. It's about God doing what only God can. Because unless God is working through you, the honest fact is that you can't work for God. Which is why action is backwards as it seems, as counterintuitive as it sounds, starts with prayer. Prayer that's all about God and about God's word and about God's work. Why? Because action starts behind the scenes before it gets up on camera. But while action starts behind the scenes, its second comes to life on camera. It comes to life in life and does so as God's people move forward in faith, convinced on the one hand of their inability to do anything on their own, driving them to their knees, but confident on the other hand of God's ability to accomplish great things through them, which drives them to move. And I'm not going to dive into all the details of this as it uh, comes to the four in chapter two here. I'd invite you then to just do that on your own later, to, to, to look over this and the, the few scenes that are put together in this chapter. But let me just point out how Nehemiah himself draws attention, um, attention to the fact that he moves because God moves in him, because God has moved for him. And then that others move as well. This is how it goes. And it begins when he moves forward in faith before the king. You see it there? The, the king who he's mentioned at the end of his prayer, whom Nehemiah served as a cupbearer, as the cupbearer. Who, if you remember, is a king that we already met back in Ezra chapter 4, who had already, at this point in his reign, put a stop to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. There was a foreshadow back in Ezra chapter 4. We're now at that point in history. And this is the king. That doesn't stop Nehemiah, though. The same king, though, that Nehemiah now asks, this is the same king that he now asks in chapter 2, verse 5, that if it pleased the king, that literally, it, if it seemed good to the king, I'm going to make a point of that, if it seemed good to the king, if he would allow Nehemiah to return to that city to attempt to rebuild it again, to rebuild what he describes as a city of graves, right? The city of my father's graves a city of death. Nehemiah goes so far as to ask the king in this little exchange to fund the project out of his own pocket. We've seen it before, but what audacity, right? Notice, though, verse 6, that against all odds, it did please the king. It did seem good to the king to send him. Yet when Nehemiah rounds off the story in verse 8, and here's the, the clincher, he's not so focused on what seemed good to the king, but on the fact that this seemed good to the king of kings. That it seemed good to Artaxerxes only because the good hand of God, same word, 
was upon him. So the man moves because he's confident that God moves. That God moves with him, and so he moves in faith. And he leaves the protection of the king to travel to a far-off country, to rebuild a far-off city and reclaim his far-off people. Even though when he gets there, notice verse 10, there are those who are displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare or the good, it's the same word again, that a man had come to seek the good of God's people. Yet shortly after surveying all that needed to be done, with eyes wide open to the magnitude of the problem, not blind to it, but fully aware of the mess that needed to be dealt with. You can read about this, this night rye that Nehemiah takes around the city, surveying the mess. And yet shortly after, telling God's people, not that they were in a place that had no hope, but that God's good hand, notice what it says at the end of verse 18, that God's good hand had been on him. And that even here, look, God's people then strengthened their hands for the good work. Interesting, right? So what's the point? That God's man moves for the good of God's people. Because God's good hand is upon him. He moves in faith because God moves with him. And because of the good of the man, the good of the woman, the hands of God's people are strengthened for good after him. Driven to take action, not only behind the scenes, but in front of the cameras, with all the world watching. Driven, yes, to their knees, first and foremost, always to their knees, to where the action starts, but driven also to move as action steps out in faith. And yet all that God did, all that God did through the good hand of the man named Nehemiah, was looking forward to what God would someday do so much more through the good hand of a man named Jesus. The man of God, whose whole life was a life of prayer. A life of intimacy with his father, who did more behind the scenes than any of us could ever dream of doing. And therefore was able to do more on camera but whose prayers never had to be about his own need to be rebuilt himself so that they therefore could always be about rebuilding us. Who left not only the side of some king on earth, but left the side of the king of heaven to travel to our far off country to rebuild rebuild in our midst a far-off city, ultimately to raise up for himself his far-off people. 
fully aware of the mess he was getting into, the mess that we were in, to raise his people out of the graves. Serve him again in that city raised out of the ruins. To strengthen their hands for the good work. All because of the good work he did with his. Let me leave you then with two thoughts. First, with regards to prayer. That this again is where the action begins. Behind the scenes, off camera, in the intimacy of a relationship with God made possible by the good work accomplished by Jesus. That his good work ought to to kick us back to where good work begins. To waiting on God to do great things through us. Not with doing great things for God apart from him. So, So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, take a cue from the man that accomplished the greatest work and let that drive you to your knees. To ask God to do what only God can. To to bring your spouse or your siblings or your kids to a saving knowledge of his son. To turn back the darkness in this world. to, To break it with the dawn. To overcome where there seems to be no hope. And not only to give you the wisdom to do it in your own strength or to deal with it yourself. Ask God in your prayers to deal with it on your behalf. Because there's some things that no matter how much wisdom you have, you ain't going to be able to take care of. So first, let it drive you to your knees. Second, let it drive you to move. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to move. To yes, pray and to, and to continue to pray, to always pray, just like Nehemiah did, right? Praise before the kings in the middle of the conversation. Just like Jesus did all the way to the cross. But also let me encourage you to move, to step out in faith, to go beyond your comfort zone. Jeff said it, and there is a sense in which we don't want to pressurize anyone to go off and do in their own strength what God is not moving them to do. That maybe you just want to show up on Pumpkin Fest to, to, to lightly, you know, touch some unbelievers. But really, if you are not going after them, I hope at least the work that God has done through Jesus is moving you to weep and mourn over the state of God's people, those inside and those still yet out. That God would move you. Sometimes it's going to take you going out of that comfort zone and getting a little embarrassed, not knowing how to do it, 
trusting in faith that God's going to work through that too, constantly putting yourself out there. The greatest evangelists that I have known in life, in regular life, who don't have the platform but are reaching people to Jesus are those who began by stumbling into it because they couldn't help it. Maybe that's you. My prayer for you is that you would, driven to your knees, ultimately be driven to move. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the testimony. It's a testimony, Lord. He's writing in the first person all over this thing, just like Ezra did before him. Testimony of Nehemiah, of your work among your people at that particular point, at that particular time in your people's history. That you, after doing all the other work over what's now an 80-year period, that you were continuing to do the work of rebuilding them as you rebuilt in them, built into them action. And I pray with that, I pray with that, that thousands and thousands of years now later, that you would continue the work. And even more so, having done the greatest work in Jesus, that you would drive us to our knees now. And that through that, as we continue on our knees, you would drive us to move. I pray ultimately for your glory and for our good and the good of your world. In Jesus' name, amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.